Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased indeed to welcome back to the programme Dr. Mobin Syed, otherwise known as Dr. Bean, of the excellent YouTube channel Dr. Bean Medical Lectures. And indeed... Very pleased to welcome back Dr. Bean's cat, Luffy, who I think is uh, rapidly becoming perhaps even more famous um, uh, character than Dr. Bean himself. Uh, Dr. Bean, uh, MD, MS, graduated from King Edward Medical University in 1994 and has worked over the years in clinical medicine, computer science and medical education. He is the CEO and founder of Dr. Bean Personalized Medical Education, whose website is www.drbean.com. That's D-R-B-E. E-N.com. Dr. Bean and indeed Luffy, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us on the program again. Thank you very much for having us. It's uh, great to be speaking with you again because uh, we had a very enjoyable and informative conversation last time back in the summer, June, July, something like that, where you kindly came on to share with us about various food supplements that may well be beneficial for our immune systems as we try to you know, either avoid getting this dreaded uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus or, or fighting it off if we're unfortunate enough to contract it. And I remember that uh, Luffy had quite a lot to say last time, so I'm looking forward to asking <laughs> Ask him a question, if, if that's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Luffy has actually started to understand that he is the primary entity <laughs> and we are all just serving his purposes. So yes. totally cool if you ask questions. Ah, good. Well, when we get to that, I shall find a question for him. Anyway, in the meantime, I've been uh, continuing to follow your teaching videos, uh, which I do encourage everybody to check out Dr. Bean Medical Lectures on YouTube, because I said last time, and I will say it again, I think they are highly informative and very entertaining as well. They're suitable for medical people, but they're also very suitable for lay people because you have that great skill of being able to uh, make quite complex things easy to understand with your clear explanations and illustrations. So thank you very much for doing that. Now, today, of course, we're going to be speaking about a different subject from last time. We're going to be talking about the drug ivermectin and its mechanisms of action as regards COVID-19. Now, of course, listeners will know that's the drug that we talked about with Dr. Paul Marek a while back, uh, but we didn't have time to go into the mechanisms because there was so much else to talk about. So we're going to talk about mechanisms today. But before we do get on to that, for those people who are not familiar with you, perhaps didn't catch the last program, could you just tell us a little bit about your medical company, Dr. Bean Personalized Medical Education? Absolutely. So once again, thank you very much for having me and having Luffy on the show. Uh, and thank you very much for the last podcast as well. I hope people enjoyed it and were able to take mm. some advantage from that. Um, so Dr. Bean Medical Lectures, we started in 2015. The basic idea at that time was that we were creating medical lectures for medical students. I've been a medical student myself, have been looking for something that can explain medical concepts in a more easy and digestible way, in a more recallable way, entertaining way. Mm. So in 2015, we took this purpose and we started developing these lectures. At that time, there was a friend of mine. She was a student as well, Emily. She said, hey, why don't we offer these for nurses and professionals as well, other than medical students? And so since then, we have been creating content that is for nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, early residents, 
doctors and we offer them credits or CMEs or CEs as they say it. Since uh, 2015, that is what we are doing. Mm-hmm. And do you actually put uh, things like eyes and the like on the lectures that you do for professionals as well? Yes. You do? <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> Excellent indeed. So actually, that is how we became known uh-huh. because all the cells, for example, for the immune system that we make, I put eyes and ears and arms and things. And then uh, in my whole <laughs> lecturing time, there has just been one time when an immunology PhD student sent me an angry note saying, your anthropomorphism has really caused a lots of anxiety in me that why do you continue to do this? I want to have more serious discussions. But other than that, everyone has loved them. And it actually makes it a little more recallable. Mm, absolutely. And of course, you have ivermectin man, don't you, as you discussed I ivermectin. Do. You have this superhero with a, <laughs> the letter I on his chest instead of like S for Superman. And he's uh, sorting everything out for us. It's an excellent idea. Absolutely. Yes. Um, may I just ask you, I understand that you are being audited or your company is being audited at the moment. <laughs> yes. Is that because is that because of the lectures that you've been doing on YouTube, touching on things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine? So um, the auditing company said that they cannot disclose what was the complaint. Uh But we have been teaching these things for about four or five years. Mm. Most of our content is the same content other than that content that may need a revision because there is a change in medical concepts or research has advanced further that area of medicine. So the only additional topics that we have been adding are these COVID-related topics, including hydroxy and ivermectin. Mm. Uh, One clue that I had within the audit was that the auditors, and they've been very nice. I'm not dinging them. They've been very helpful. Mm. Uh, But they did say that, hey, at some point, we are hoping that you would review your course material. And then if you found that there are topics that you touched upon which were not valid, then you would remove them. So that kind of gave me an idea that maybe there is a complaint about the off-label usage of these things, but it's not fully disclosed. It's just that we are under audit. They have found some gaps in our work, um, just like disclosures and are we doing anything off-label and so on, and we would be fixing those. Hmm. Yes, I can see that it's a rather stressful thing to have to deal with. Um, and is it right that you actually did have recently COVID-19 or do you still not know whether you had it or not? I had all the symptoms of COVID-19, hmm. meaning nasal congestion, sore throat, although runny nose and nasal congestion were not originally COVID symptoms. However, CDC has very recently added them to the COVID symptoms as, as well. Hmm. Uh, and in the California, this new strain has been known to cause these kind of symptoms. So I had these symptoms, plus I had fever, I had myalgia, tiredness, fatigue. So I started with all of those. Of course, I was not just treating myself by myself. I talked with lots of uh, cool bean doctors, my you know family friends. And so they, uh, half of them, some of them feel that this is not COVID. I also think now when I look back, this may not be COVID. Uh, others are very, very sure that this was COVID and I actually was saved or somehow my body 
spared me a more severe and intense outcome. I did get my PCR test and that came back negative. I am going to go get my antibody test as well and see what happens. If antibody test comes back negative as well and PCR is negative too, then it is not COVID. It is something maybe rhinovirus or some other cold virus. Mm. Interesting thing is that during this time when I was going through these symptoms, I was taking ivermectin as well Ah, as my management. And one day I decided to stop ivermectin to test if it is doing anything. And the next day I became so ill and I became so tired. The whole day I stayed in the bed. I did my YouTube video as well and I was all fatigued and I didn't want to do it. And people can actually go and see that video and see the clear difference between the yesterday of from that day and that day. And then I started ivermectin again Mm. and I became all right. Mm. And this is now today is my second day that I have stopped ivermectin and I am still 100%. So there was some benefit of ivermectin may have been placebo Mm. or may have been an actual benefit. Now, if it was not COVID, then it was useful for some other viruses. And if it was COVID, then it was useful for that. Right. Presumably it could have been another coronavirus, I suppose, giving you cold-like symptoms. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. Well, I think we'd better say, actually, before we go any further, I usually put in this little disclaimer, I think is very important. Uh, nothing said in this conversation should be understood as medical advice. Everything said in this podcast is simply the sharing of information and opinion, expert opinion in Dr. Mobin's case. It is not medical advice, which is necessarily an individual matter. Please do consult your doctor before taking any medications or making any changes to your diet by way of food supplements. Okay, so we're going to be talking about ivermectin's mechanisms of action, or hypothesized mechanisms of action as regards SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. Now, in your recent videos, you discuss several ways in which this drug may well be effective by way of prophylaxis, treatment for this disease, as an inhibitor of infection, to go against viral replication as an anti-inflammatory, so active across many stages of the disease, which, which is in fact what uh, Dr. Marek said to us, that ivermectin does seem to be amazing across the whole of this disease. So let's start with its standard mechanism of action. Now, could you just briefly tell us what it is and what it's usually prescribed for? Absolutely. So um, if I can, uh, before answering your question, if I can add a Mm. comment here about the usage of the ivermectin and Dr. Marek. So Dr. Marek has been discussing these topics with me as well for my YouTube channel. One thing that may be of interest to everyone listening is ivermectin is such an interesting medicine that it can work very well in prophylaxis. It can work very well during an active disease. It can work very well during the active diseases viral phase versus cytokine phase. And then it has been showing very good results with long hauling state as well. Mm. So this is the first drug, possibly the only drug that has been observed to cover the whole spectrum. Right. If we look at other drugs, for example, remdesivir, that would be good for the viral phase. If we look at things like steroids, these would be very good for cytokine phase or long haul state. And for prophylaxis, there is actually nothing, maybe vitamin D and other supplements. So ivermectin is the first one that fits the bill for all the stages. Mm. So having said that, let me go back to your question. So originally, ivermectin's usage is being an antiparasitic or deworming medicine. And it has been used in humans and it has been used in animals and it is still being used in animals a lot. What it does is 
So a worm is a little bit higher creature compared to a virus or a bacteria, for example. So worms have muscles and they breathe and they respire and have digestive systems and so on. What ivermectin does is fortunate for us, it attaches to the muscle cell of the worm. And on the muscle cell, there are chloride channels. We call them GABA-gated chloride channels. So these chloride channels, when they are open, they allow chloride, which is a negative ion, to go into the cell. The importance of that is that when a cell, let's say a muscle cell, imagine for a second I am a worm and I have my respiratory system and my respiratory system needs to, the muscles need to contract to let me inhale and exhale. And imagine if those muscles become paralyzed. And that is true for the worm and that is true for the human beings as well or any animal who uses muscles to breathe. Mm -hmm. That if the muscles are paralyzed, they cannot breathe anymore and they would die. Mm -hmm. What ivermectin does is it opens the chloride channel, making inside of the muscle cell more negative. And when a muscle cell has to function it has to go from a state of being negative, just like, you know, human psychology, that if you want to perform something, you have to go from a negative state to a positive state to do something good, right? Okay. So the muscle cell has to go from a state of negative or what we say polarized state to a depolarized state or towards zero or positive state. Now, if you make a muscle cell very negative, then it would take a lot of positive ions, for example, sodium, to enter that muscle cell to bring it back to zero or towards a positive potential. Mm. And if you hyperpolarize it by opening chloride channels and fill that muscle with negativity, then it's not going to become positive easily and it would not work. And that is how the paralysis occurs. And that is what kills the worm. Mm. Fortunately, in its therapeutic doses, and even slightly higher doses from therapeutic doses, it does not do that to our muscles. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it actually never does that to our muscles. Yeah. And because of that, it is safe. Yeah. And it has been used for this billions of times is that right with people who are indeed See? infected with these worms and it doesn't affect the human generally speaking but it does kill the worms absolutely so 3.75 billion doses have been administered wow. and there are so many people worldwide that have been saved from death or blindness for example the river blindness that worm that enters the eye mm. this drug has been saving them and that is why the nobel prizes were given to the teams mm. that came mm. up with this drug it's an amazing substance so what is your reaction to those people particularly in the media who say well you know this is ridiculous it's a deworming tablet that's what it's for so it's completely illegitimate to be using it for covid-19 yeah, so uh, when I look at it, in the beginning, I used to get annoyed that why did they not do their homework? Because from a journalist, from a media personality, we would expect them, if this is their function, this is their job, to do some digging to understand instead of just mm. continue on with superficial level of information. Yes. yes, we know it is a deworming medicine and that is how it has been used. But if you go and look at the studies, even before covid there are so many studies in which this molecule was tried for Ebola or for other cold viruses or for even cancers. The thing is this, it is a molecule at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, for example, let's say if I have a car and I use that to go from my home to my office, 
I cannot just declare that car that it is only to go to office. I can still <laughs> use that car to go do groceries as well. Sure. Similarly, this is a molecule, a molecule that we have found to be very useful to kill worms. Mm. But at the same time, because it is a molecule, it is a chemical substance, we can try to use it in other cases and observe if it works or not. Mm. And it has been observed to work in lot more ways than just killing worms. Yes, and this does ignore what has indeed been spoken about quite a lot in, in the media itself, which is the repurposing of drugs that already exist and uh, seeing how they could be used against COVID-19 or perhaps against other illnesses. So this is there's nothing unusual, is there, about repurposing an existing drug? Not at all. Actually, this is the right way of doing medicine, mm. that you are not boxing yourself into one purpose only. A research worker, a doctor should know the mechanism of something and then try to see, can I expand that mechanism? So, of course, we don't do those experiments on humans. We actually take some cultures of cells outside in a dish and then use molecules on those cells and see what is the response. So this is what medical research is. This is how we have reached to this level of sophistication compared to, let's say, a thousand years ago. And this is why in a hundred years our medicine will totally be different. So if we today froze our molecules and their functions in time and said, from now on, do not ever try to figure out what more a molecule can do, then our medicine would stop advancing. Mm. This is a natural way to advance medicine. Mm. Okay, well, let's talk about some of these other mechanisms of action for this same substance. Now, Dr. Marek mentioned a study that seemed to kick all this off by Kaylee et al. Yes. Uh, called FDA-approved drug ivermectin inhibits the replication of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. So this was uh, in a Petri dish or something, wasn't it? This was not actually using human beings. Correct. And they said that a single treatment was able to affect about a 5,000-fold reduction in virus at 48 hours in cell culture. Amazing. And they postulated, I believe, that ivermectin might be doing something called the alpha and beta importance Correct. mechanism of action. Is that right? Correct. Can you tell us about that? Alpha and beta importance. Absolutely, absolutely. So first of all, I think we all should be grateful to Kelly's creative thinking to say, well, we have this problem of SARS-CoV-2. And I, being a scientist or a doctor, I can probably go do some tests on molecules and see which maybe something will work. Mm. And he took this cheap molecule, uh, ivermectin, put that on cells which were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And then he observed them for 24 hours and 48 hours, and he saw that 98% of the viruses had gone away in 48 hours. So that was the basis that he came back with. Now, mm -hmm. what is the mechanism that may have been helping? His postulation was, and this was a known theory before, what happens is this. So I'm going to explain important alpha and beta. So uh, hear me out. When a virus enters a cell, it's not necessarily SARS-CoV-2, other viruses too. When the cell becomes stressed out because of the virus in it, cell may open up certain genes in its own nucleus that will create substances that would help this cell stay strong and make proteins that would combat that stressor. Just like when we become depressed, we have to maybe watch a motivational video or, or read something or find something that can help us climb back out of that depression. Similarly, 
a cell has to figure out ways to combat the virus. That is one. Secondly, when a cell is under stress by a pathogen, a foreign entity, it also secretes interferons, especially interferon alpha and tumor necrosis factor. These are chemical substances which it secretes in the environment around this. And those substances would float and swim in that environment and go to the nearby cells. And when nearby cells would detect the presence of interferons and tumor necrosis factor, like things in the environment, they would say, oh man, there is something happening. Something wrong is happening in some cell and we need to shore up our defenses as well. So not only the cell kind of protects itself, but the neighboring cells as well. It kind of yells out to them to say, okay, get ready. There is a foreigner, uh, there is a virus here. Yes, in your, you, you have all these drawings, of course, and we can't see this in a podcast, but hopefully you allow me Correct. to use some of your drawings uh, in the show notes so that people can see. Absolutely. And you have here a whole bunch of little cells that are next to the infected cell, and they've all got their swords out and their shields, and their, <laughs> yes. because of the interferon that's come out of the infected cell, they know about it, and they're all ready to, uh, to protect themselves. So yes, so far in the story, that's what's going on. <laughs> Correct. So now here is what SARS-CoV-2. So now SARS-CoV-2 has to figure out a way to combat this behavior of the cells, mm. to strip them down of their defenses. So what SARS-CoV-2 does is that it uses two proteins in our cytoplasm or in our cell. And the context to keep in mind is that our cell, the brain of the cell, the nucleus, and the outside, the cytoplasm of the cell or the body of the cell, they continuously uh, exchange messages with each other. So the cytoplasm can send a message in the nucleus to say, hey, I need this. And the nucleus would then send the recipe to make that thing and make that available to the cell. So there are two proteins called importin alpha and beta. I call them donkeys. We could call them car or something. <laughs> These... Yeah, you, got, you have a picture of a donkey inside yes. the cell. Yes. Yes, excellent. Presumably they don't actually look like donkeys, do they? <laughs> they, they <laughs> we haven't seen them yet in that way, but I am sure that now that I've depicted them as donkeys, they, they're going to come up that way. So um, yes. those little carrier proteins can take a message from cytoplasm and bring it into the nucleus. So they are message carriers like postmen. Mm. And then they bring it, bring the message in the nucleus and the nucleus would then read that message and say, all right, I need to have following genes open and I have to do following things. SARS-CoV-2 uses these two proteins and attaches its own message on them, which they called, Kelly called it the viral cargo. That cargo goes into the nucleus and tells the nucleus not to open the genes to defend itself and not to open the genes to tell the neighboring cells to defend themselves or secrete interferons. Right. So they thought ivermectin actually binds to importin alpha and beta. So imagine that there is one donkey that is going to be used by the virus to send a message. And if you occupy that donkey, if you tie it somewhere and don't let it go into the nucleus, then the virus's message will not go into the nucleus. Mm -hmm. So that is what happens. Uh, ivermectin binds with important alpha and beta, disrupts them from being used by the viral cargo. The result is that the nucleus would still feel the stresses of the virus. It would still secrete interferons. It will cause the self cell to become strong plus it would cause the neighboring cells to become strong as well and that allows the cells to take care of the virus very well and within 48 hours the virus is kind of 
gone. Yeah. It's very difficult, isn't it, to follow this in audio, but um, please do go to the show notes because there will be some of these illustrations there to give an idea of, of what's going on here. So the, the virus has actually got into the cell and it wants to get onto this little donkey, which is the alpha and beta importance. And if it does that, then the viral cargo, the viral bits end up in the nucleus and they cause this problem with the interferon not being produced, which is this key substance that needs to be produced. But ivermectin can come along, get into the cell and actually sit on that donkey instead. So the virus just can't take that ride into the nucleus. Is that right? Absolutely. Very well summarized. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, if that's going on, that's very exciting, isn't that? Well, that's just one possible mechanism here. But uh, you have a number. There's another antiviral one here. So this is to do with ACE2. Well, I like this because this looks like ivermectin literally getting in the way of the virus as it tries to attach itself to our cells. Is that right? Is it literally just getting in the way, standing in the gap? Correct. And so uh, one more uh, comment here for the audience. The discussions of the mechanisms that we are doing, these are not the mechanisms that I just cooked up. Mm. Because I read sometimes uh, my program is being watched by many people as well. So when I see sometimes people comment in there and they say, Dr. Mubin just came up with this by himself and he's just pulling it out of thin air and so on. Mm. Uh, The videos in which I've talked about these mechanisms In the description of those videos, there are the links to the studies in which these mechanisms have been postulated or theorized or seen. Mm. So this particular mechanism that we're talking about, what they did was the researchers, they did a what we say in silico simulation or computer based simulation. And nowadays, computer based simulations are very common in medical research. What you do is you give the computer, for example, ivermectin molecule. And the computer would figure out what kind of positive and negative charges are present on this and what is the structure of the molecule. Mm. Then you give it another molecule, the computer, and say, can you see if these two can bind with each other like magnets attracting each other or not? And then the computer can come back and say, you know what, here is the structure of this molecule and here is the structure of the other molecule and they can fit together and they have this negative and positive charges as well and they can bind with each other and here is the affinity uh, or the energy of binding in them so computer can come back and simulate a lot that is actually is the basis to form new molecules and new drugs so they did this study in silico where they gave the structure of the spike protein structure of the ACE enzyme that is on our cells and the virus spike protein SARS-CoV-2's Spike protein binds with the ACE2 enzyme on our cell surfaces, and that is how it finally ends up in our cells. So they found out that ivermectin can actually bind with the spike protein and inhibit or disrupt the binding of the spike protein to the ACE2 enzyme. This is very similar to, for example, if I'm going to open a door to my home, I need a hand to rotate the knob and come in. But imagine if on my hand, you put a glove and you tie that glove in a way that I cannot operate my hand anymore. So now I can probably touch the doorknob, but I cannot hold it and I cannot rotate it and I cannot push it. That is what happens. Ivermectin gets stuck to the spike protein of the virus 
and now the virus's hand, the spike protein, cannot bind with ACE2 correctly, mm. and so it cannot enter the cell and the rest of the function doesn't happen. So what we would say is in this mechanism that ivermectin disrupts viral entry into the cell by binding to the spike proteins. And this is actually wonderful to look at the drawings that you have, because this is like, as you say, it's like a door into the cell, this ACE2 receptor. And you literally, you have ivermectin man standing in this doorway, and you've got the virus that's really upset because it can't get into the cell. It's sort of joined onto the hands of ivermectin while the feet of ivermectin man are, are well planted in the doorway. And it really is just in the gap there between the virus and the cell. Correct. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a great teaching aid, what you do with these drawings now is this related at all to the way this is slightly off subject but people have talked about the the cough medicine bromhexine and it just reminds me a little about how that was hypothesized to work to do with the ace2 and standing in the gap and all that is it related to that yeah so it is related to that so what happens is this uh, if we look at the original mechanism of how this virus enters our cell what happens is imagine that the virus has its hand that it needs to bind with our cell to then enter in it. The hand itself, now imagine for a second that the hand is actually two hands, but they are both put together, stuck together in a glove. So first the virus needs someone to cleave, as we say in medicine, to cut the glove from the two hands and separate the two hands so that virus can now use two hands, one to hold the cell our cell surface, and the other one to open the door. I would say it this way that imagine somebody is feeling a little dizzy. Maybe they had alcohol or something, and now they want to enter their home. They would probably place one hand on the wall to stabilize themselves, and then they'll use the other hand to turn the doorknob. Yes. That's exactly what this virus needs. It hmm. needs the spike protein to be split into pieces and one piece will fuse with our cell membrane to kind of stabilize the virus and initiate the fusion. And the other one will bind with the ACE2 enzyme. That process of splitting the, uh, we call it in medicine, we call it priming the spike protein. That process of priming is done by TMPRSS2, which is a protein that is sitting near the ACE2. So imagine that you come in. I'm sorry, I'm going to use you for an example. Let's say you come in oh, okay. <laughs> and you want to enter the house and your both hands are tied together. Then what you do is you first put your hands near this TMPRSS2. That is going to untie your hands. Then you hold the wall with one hand and the knob with the other hand and open the door and go in. Mm. That is what happens. And Bromhexen's job is to stop that TMPRSS2 that primes the spike protein and separates it into two hands, it stops that. So that also reduces the capability of the virus to enter the cells. Mm. Ivermectin does function slightly differently. Instead of stopping the priming of the spike protein, ivermectin actually just sits between the spike protein and the ACE2 enzyme, binds with both of them, and just does not let the virus bind with ACE2 that correctly. And that is how it disrupts the entry. Hmm. Yes, interesting. So not quite the same, but related to it. Correct. I was interested in bromexine for a while because it is possible to get hold of it uh, in Europe. Um, right. Another one called camostat mesylate is similar, isn't it? But I think that's, Correct. is there not more evidence to suggest that that might be 
more successful than bromexine. Correct. Correct. So there have been many studies which have shown chemostat mesylate to be much more potent and efficacious compared to bromhexine. Mm. Amazing. There are these things around and we don't tend to hear about them. Can I ask you, just before going on to another antiviral mechanism of ivermectin, can I just ask you, um, when I spoke to Dr. Marek, he was quite clear that he sees ivermectin as complementary to vaccination. He wasn't thinking of it as something instead of vaccination. I understand that you have the same opinion. Yes, and there is a reason for that. Ivermectin has never been used in a continuous fashion by one person. Imagine if I decide not to take a vaccine. That means if I want to stay protected and let's say ivermectin can help with that, then I have to keep taking it as long as coronavirus is around. And it's going to be around for years now. On the other hand, either I become infected, which carries the risk of dying, or I get the vaccine, which would then help me be less susceptible from the virus itself. Once we have the vaccination, then my fear of getting the infection and becoming severely ill goes away, and I don't need to take ivermectin anymore. So ivermectin long-term usage is not proven, kind of an uncharted territory. Even now, the usage is kind of uncharted. It's off-label, but continuous usage is not observed. That is one. And secondly, vaccine in a very deterministic way provides protection. And the third is every drug doesn't work 100% of the time on 100% of the people. So it is possible that some people may not respond to ivermectin like others. So we should not just take that chance of using ivermectin like that. Okay, so you mentioned another possible mechanism here. Now, this is something similar to the way remdesivir was reckoned to work. Um, yes. But I, I get the impression, certainly from Dr. Marek, that well, he's, he's not very keen on remdesivir. So this is to do with the, um, now, this is a real mouthful, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, <laughs> or RDRP mechanism. This substance, RDRP, kind of gets hijacked by the virus and sort of turned into a mini factory to produce more RNA for new baby viruses. Is it, is it something like that? Absolutely. Is it? Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So the, uh, to see this mechanism, what we have to realize is that when the virus enters our cell, virus has a problem as well. And that is, how do I make more babies? How do I make more viruses? And virus has some very interesting techniques. This virus has a couple of enzymes. One of them is called RDRP or RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. What that means is virus's own brain, SARS-CoV-2's own brain is an RNA, ribonucleic acid. There is an enzyme that is made when the virus enters. So imagine the virus enters a cell right now. Now the virus is a problem that how do I increase in number? So it says, you know what? I'm going to make a machine that would help me duplicate my RNA. That machine is called RDRP. Mm. So first of all, it makes that enzyme that is called RDRP. That enzyme will then pick up the virus's brain, that is the RNA of the virus, and start making copies of it. Then those newer babies that are formed, they will all need a brain as well, and that is the RNA's copy. So these new copies that are formed will be inserted one copy each into every assembly, every new baby virus, and those viruses will be asked to go out and carry on doing the same thing. So RDRP 
is a very important enzyme for this virus to start replicating. And if RDRP is disrupted, if that doesn't work, then one virus cannot become million viruses. And what happens are there are three things that disrupt it. From a mechanism point of view, there are tons of antivirals that do it. Mm. But three things that have been seen or for this one. Number one, uh, of course, you talked about remdesivir. Remdesivir is supposed to act as a fake material for the virus's brain. And when the RDRP picks up that material to make new brains, remdesivir gets stuck in the RDRP enzyme. Imagine it's a machine and you throw a wrench in it and the machine gets all, you know, jammed. Remdesivir is supposed to jam that machine, although it has not really worked that well. Yeah. Then is ivermectin. Ivermectin is also observed to disrupt the function of RDRP. And the third thing is zinc in this context that we've talked about with hydroxy, that once the zinc is inside the cell, that can also disrupt RDRP. So yes, this is one more mechanism of ivermectin to disrupt RDRP, which then reduces further replication of the virus. Mm. Yes, you mentioned zinc there. That, uh, yes, we talked about that before, didn't we? How it's very difficult for zinc to actually get into the cell. And that's why something like hydroxychloroquine, or I think you mentioned quercetin. Yes, there's another, another substance that can help to get the zinc into the cell. And so this would then interfere with the RDRP in a way that remdesivir is supposed to. Correct. <laughs> and ivermectin does. But um, ivermectin doesn't need to have an ionophore, does it, to get it into the cell? No, it can actually enter the cell by itself. Mm, indeed. Um, okay, well, there's also, as we said at the beginning of the program, it's not just antiviral, it's also there is an anti-inflammatory role that's hypothesized as well for ivermectin. Can you tell us something about that, something to do with this thing called nuclear factor kappa B in our cells? Absolutely. And if I can just add one more uh, mm. comment to the last answer. Do. Uh, remdesivir is observed in another study to not only disrupt RDRP, but it also disrupts another enzyme called 3-chymotrypsin-like protease. That is also an enzyme by this virus. And uh, mm -hmm. that is so fascinating. I chuckle every time I look at this, uh, the virus's behavior and then the drug's behavior. What the virus does is that once it enters our cell, Remember, the primary problem the virus is trying to solve is how do I make more baby viruses? Yeah. And in that problem, it has to do two things. One, it has to make more brains that can go in the new baby viruses, though more RNA. And the second thing it has to do is it has to make more bodies, mm. which will become virus particles. And to make more bodies, it needs to make more enzymes and more machineries that would then make these bodies of the virus. And... In the beginning, the viral RNA, when that is translated by our cell, <laughs> so we have machines in our cell called ribosomes that will pick up viruses' brain or recipe and use that to make viruses' proteins. Unknowingly, they don't know that this is a virus. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so very first protein that is made by this virus, other than the RDRP, is something that is called a polyprotein. Uh -huh. What that means is if you have seen, uh, you know, children sometimes when they're playing, they buy toys that are in the form of a sheet. And inside the sheet, there are cutouts. And you can kind of punch out those cutouts and they are animals or soldiers. And, yeah. Yes, right? I know what you mean. Yes. Right? So That's right. the virus makes yeah. a polyprotein, which is really a big sheet of enzymes, but they're all stuck together in that 
and they need to be cut out of that sheet to then become the actual functioning things. And there is an enzyme called 3-chymotrypsin-like protease, which is part of that polyprotein. It automatically breaks off, and then it breaks off the remaining enzymes, and that starts the assembly of the virus bodies. Ah, right. Ivermectin disrupts that enzyme as well. Wow, I see, yeah. So not only it disrupts the RDRP, it disrupts the three chymotrypsin like protease as well. That is how it disrupts the further assemblies. I'll just repeat that because that is quite an amazing image there that you have these new little viral bodies mm. being formed. Well, they're not going to get formed if, if ivermectin does its job there, but also these little brains or the, the, the RNA inside those little bodies. Well, that's not going to get formed either. So this is a just dead end there. If, if this actually does work, that's a dead end for both the body and the brain of the new little viruses. Amazing. Correct. And this is why Kelly observed mm. that within 48 hours, 99% of the virus was gone mm. because they just could not make new viruses. And yet we've heard so much more about remdesivir than we've heard about vivamectin, but it looks as if ivermectin is much more successful than remdesivir. Absolutely. And this also goes back to my initial comment that ivermectin works very well in the whole spectrum, mm. prophylaxis, early viral stage, late cytokine stage, or long hauling stage. It works in all of them because of these mechanisms. It is incredible uh, that, uh, you know, we're not hearing more about this. It's not being prescribed. It is a tragedy. And, and I'm so glad that you you continue to inform everybody about it. And, you know, I was very glad to have this conversation so that it's not just talking about the fact of ivermectin, but giving some idea of the power of it with respect to all these mechanisms. Thank you. Um, so yes, go on, please tell us about the anti-inflammatory aspect of this as well. Absolutely. And once again, I'll repeat it for anyone who wanted to see what these researches are. Mm. They can go to my videos or maybe I can find those links and send them to you as well to put them here. The discussions that I'm doing, I am not just cooking up things. Mm. These are medical researches and the discussions and the mechanisms that I have explained are really just trying to simplify the message from those researches to say this is how it works. And those can be seen and read and made an opinion about. Now, talking about the nuclear factor kappa beta or kappa B, what happens is whenever our body is under attack, and that can be because of an injury that can be because of uh, an infection. That can be because of some autoimmune disease that attacks our own body. So there are many ways that our body can become injured. Whenever our body is injured, its response, one part of the response, is to create pain and swelling and redness in the area of the injury. The reason for that is that swelling and redness is a side effect of sending more blood in that area so that repairs can be done more nutrition can be sent, more immune cells can be sent, more repair cells can be sent, more fighters can be sent. So that is a natural outcome of an injury that there is local swelling and redness. And then the pain is there to alert us to say, there is something wrong happening, please take action. So our brain is also made aware of some damage. And this is what happens that in some folks, for example, folks who have diabetes and do not have better control on it, slowly their nerves, for example, from feet, cannot convey the message to brain, and they find that they get 
injuries on their feet and they don't even know that these were injured. That is because their brain was not told. And now these injuries just keep becoming bad because when the brain is not aware and they are not aware of the pain, they don't go and try to fix it. So same thing happens with all infections as well. In this pathway, this is called inflammation. In this pathway of creating pain and redness and swelling, there are many chemical substances that are released to help do that. For example, prostaglandins are released. For example, leukotrienes are released and many other such substances. One pathway for the release of such inflammatory cytokines is called nuclear factor or NFK-beta mm. or NF-kappa-B, nuclear factor kappa-B. This is a substance pathway within our cell that results in the inflammatory chemicals to be released. Ivermectin is known to disrupt that as well. Because of that, the inflammatory response of our body reduces. So now if you go back to my original message that, hey, this is necessary for the body. So one can say, on one end, you're saying that we need this inflammatory response. And then on the other end, you're saying ivermectin is going to come in and, and suppress it. The important thing to understand in SARS-CoV-2 is this inflammatory response becomes so out of control and so overwhelming that it can even kill a person. So we don't want we want a response. We want to know that there, is, there should be pain somewhere to, for us to know there is a problem, but we don't want a fire there. So ivermectin can actually help reduce that inflammatory response and balance it out. So we are aware of the pain, but we the fires are put out. So that is an additional function. Yes, yes. So it wouldn't have the effect early on in the disease of stopping an immune response. Correct. And so if you think about it, yeah. from the viral stage to cytokine storm stage, the basic transition is that the virus is now gone, but the immune system and inflammatory system is overreacting. Ivermectin, potentially with this mechanism, kind of suppresses that as well. And that helps a person from becoming severely ill or dying. Mm. So this is a very important mechanism to keep the person from becoming severely ill. And we saw that this mechanism, or let me back up for a second, in our own patients, Dr. Marek or I or others, we see that even if they have become long haulers, that is the state after they have contracted the virus and then somehow they are still getting inflammatory issues, ivermectin actually helps them as well. And then after some use, they come out of the state. You talk about your patients. Have you treated many people with ivermectin so far for this disease? Absolutely. Mm. So for COVID, I think I've treated now maybe four or 500 people. Oh, wow. Of course, we started, if you look at the history, we started with various organizations in various countries coming out and saying, you know what, there is no solution. We do not have much antivirals for it. It is going to be like a cold. You stay at home take symptomatic treatment. If you become severely ill or you're low on oxygen, then come to hospital and we'll give you oxygen and we'll put you mm. on ventilator if necessary, right? This is what, this is incredible. and in yeah. some countries, this is still going on. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right? incredible. That yeah. is how I started as well. That, okay, there is nothing. But then uh, for me, the biggest problem was that this disease is killing people. If it was a normal, some mild flu-like thing or not even flu, common cold and two days botheration and then you become okay, then fine. But people are dying. 
So I hit the books. I went back to books and saw what happens with SARS-CoV-1 mm. and what happens with MERS-CoV and so on. Then I started looking at the researches and I started looking at hydroxy. So my practice went from doing nothing, as the authorities were saying, to, oh man, we need to start testing something. So fortunately, there were better doctors who had already been testing hydroxys or ivermectin and we could follow them. So hydroxy became my first usage with zinc. And then slowly as ivermectin became more clear, the Cali study came out and I started talking about that in, I think, March, April timeframe last year. Then I started using ivermectin. The reason for me to use ivermectin was twofold. One, I was curious to see if it would really work. And the second was ivermectin safety profile is slightly better than hydroxy. Not slightly, quite better. I don't want to ding hydroxy. Hydroxy does have a possibility of causing arrhythmia. Mm. And I just don't want to take that chance with any of my patients. So I then for some time gave hydroxy and ivermectin together. Then after becoming confident that ivermectin was working and it was saving people much faster and more reliably, then I uh, stopped giving hydroxy and I only used ivermectin. Mm. And that is what I do today as well. Yes, I noticed that Dr. Marek is not particularly impressed with hydroxychloroquine. He says the kind of the jury's still out as far as he's concerned, but you seem to be more impressed by it. You've had positive experience with it. Although I do think I remember you saying that you did have a patient or two that did have some sort of heart problem with it. Is that right? Correct. So um, ah. I am quite impressed with hydroxy with at least usage in my own patients. Mm. There was one family, uh, they're all good and healthy now, but at that time developed the children. They developed arrhythmias. Interestingly, parents with comorbidities were fine with hydroxy, but children developed uh, arrhythmias to the point that I would, they would call me and they'll say, hey, the blood pressure has gone down to 1750 and I'll panic and I'll say, let's go to emergency room. And then five minutes later, they'll say blood pressure is 90 and 70 now. So that was a troubling time and I was working remotely. So I could not even manage more uh, in front of my eyes. I mm. like to look at the patient. And mm. so anyways, that taught me a lesson that it is possible that hydroxy in this kind of a usage can cause an issue. It didn't happen to remaining 250 people, sure, but for three people it did. Mm. So because of that, when I saw ivermectin doesn't do anything like that, and it is faster. As soon as you start ivermectin, within two days, the people start responding. Yes, incredible. And so I switched to ivermectin. Mm. Now, it's interesting that uh, that kind of experience does underline the importance of any of these kinds of treatments being supervised by a doctor. You know, we say this in the disclaimers and the like, but it's important to take that very seriously, isn't it? It's not really the sort of thing that ideally one should be self-medicating with. Not at all, especially not hydroxy. Mm. Okay, now there is one other here that I want to ask you about. Now, I did before the interview mention it, and you did tell me that you haven't looked into it in any great detail, but it will be interesting just to get your reaction to it because I was attracted to this because it immediately seemed understandable to me when I when I read about it. Um, this is an antithrombotic, possible antithrombotic effect of ivermectin. Mm. I found out about this by watching the Whiteboard Doctor YouTube channel, and he discussed this, uh, this sort of anti-blood clotting possible mechanism for ivermectin, based on a paper um, by David Scheim, Dr. David... David Scheim. Scheim, okay, Dr. David Scheim. Yes, it was very interesting how possibly the virus is sort of 
catching hold, sort of holding hands with cells across the blood vessels, as it were, and, and blocking the blood vessel. And maybe ivermectin helps in this as well. Um, could you tell us anything about this? Yes. So uh, once again, it is a postulation, interesting one, and it does answer a few of the hypercoagulable state issues. So let me start from there. This article was written on June 26, 2020, and then it was published on 1st July. What we know about SARS-CoV-2 is that it can cause hypercoagulability. Mm. That means in some people, within the blood, there are clots formed, which we say thrombi. And thrombi are the clots that are formed and stay in place. But if they break off and then travel in the blood vessels and go and lodge somewhere else, for example, in brain, these are called emboli. And emboli are very dangerous because, let's say, if they go to brain, they would cause a stroke there. If they get stuck in the fingers, they'll cause COVID dose there. And if there is just generally injury of the blood vessels and occlusion of blood vessel, tissues would die. So this is when you say emboli, this is like the word embolism, presumably. Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And this is a known pathology of SARS-CoV-2. The question that why does that happen, there are so many theories. I have taught the hypercoagulable state with ACE1 and ACE2 imbalance plus the injury to the endothelium. Here there is another theory, and that theory is the following. There is a protein which is called CD147. CD stands for cluster of designation. What that means is, just like, you know, when we look at people and there is somebody who's blonde and somebody who's brune and somebody who doesn't have hair, and we can sometimes identify people to say, do you know that blonde who was there or do you know that brune who was there? Similarly, on the cells, there are various kind of protein clusters like hair on them. Hmm. And we can identify what kind of protein cluster is present on which cell. And then we can identify the cell to say this cell has CD3 on it, this cell has CD4 on it, this cell has CD8 on it. So CD147 is nothing but a cluster of specialized proteins on some cells. Mm -hmm. And what they saw was, or what they theorized was, SARS-CoV-2, not only it binds with ACE2 enzyme on our cell surfaces, it can also bind with CD147 proteins. Mm. That means wherever these proteins are present, SARS-CoV-2 can attach to those cells. And these proteins are present abundantly on red blood cells, on platelets, and some other cells. So now hear me out. Think about it with me. Imagine we have a few red blood cells, and they are doing their function, they are running in a blood vessel and they are passing each other like small cars in a on a road and they're not getting stuck to each other. They're not having, they are having accidents, but they just slip past each other. They don't get clumped up. So this is a normal behavior. Now imagine the virus SARS-CoV-2 comes in and starts getting attached to 147, CD-147 on one car, on one RBC. Now, another RBC is passing nearby, minding its own business, just carrying its own oxygen to some other part of the tissue. And here, the virus that was stuck to one car, one RBC, actually, the spike protein of the virus gets stuck to the one CD147 on the other RBC now. Yes, yes. So now, it has managed to hold two RBCs together. And then... With another spike protein, it holds yes. another RBC and another. So imagine if yeah. there, there were 
hundreds of cars going on a roadway and all of a sudden 50 of them get clumped together right because when i was looking at this i was thinking of the virus as being a bit like an octopus you know because it's got all these S- all these spike proteins on it it's not like it's got one spike protein has it when we see the picture of it it's got all these little right. bits sticking out so yeah so it's like this octopus and so it can yes. it can connect onto the cd147 receptor of many many red blood cells and at the same time. So then yes. it is really acting like a glue mm. to put them together and clump them. Mm. So when they get clumped, now we have a problem. We have a small piece of clumped RBCs inside the blood vessels. These are now going to attract more RBCs to stick with them. They're going to attract more platelets to stick with them. So just like a snowball effect, this little clump is just going to keep growing. And then it's going to eventually get stuck in some Mm. blood vessel, which is smaller than this clump size. And that is how hypercoagulable state would occur. Did uh, David Sheem also say that the the actual blood vessels themselves, the walls, have these CD147 receptors too, to sort of grab onto these clumps of... uh, Correct. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And once Mm. again, the virus is going to help with that. On one end, it's going to grab Mm. onto the endothelial's... 147. On the other end, it's going to go and hold an RBC. And now it is clumping an RBC to the vessel wall, and then it would clump more RBCs there with the 147 capture. And now we have a thrombus formed. Yeah, yeah. And that is a possible explanation of hypercoagulable state. Very interesting. And they are saying that if ivermectin is given, ivermectin binds to the virus's spike protein, which we know from other studies. And as it binds to the virus proteins, those spike proteins or the hands of the virus are not able to bind with 147s or ACE2. And that way, the clumping issue does not occur as well. Yes. So ivermectin man to the rescue, possibly. Again, Correct. putting little gloves on, the, on these little hands of the, of, of yes, the virus. Absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, as you say, a hypothesis, but uh, it's a compelling idea. Do we actually know that ivermectin has an antithrombotic effect or is that also hypothesized? So we know that it can change the drug's effect that are given for bleeding or hypercoagulable state. Yes. Through liver enzymes, it does have an effect on bleeding times if the drugs are being given. But it was not known that this has a direct effect on thrombosis. Oh. And this uh, hypothesis is there. I think hmm. we should now look into it that People who are taking ivermectin, let's say in hospitals, will they end up with hypercoagulable state or not? I don't work in ICU, so that is a part of the patient's journey that I cannot observe. Yes, um, I wanted to mention, actually, I caused you a bit of problem with this. I do apologize. I sent a a message to you at one point about vitamin E and selenium, uh, because I had read, (laughs) I had read that uh, some doctors are saying you should really give this if you're giving ivermectin. And it caused a bit of a Twitter storm for you for a while. So I I do, (laughs) I do apologize for that. Um, But but you were correct in in sending it and I was correct in talking about it. (laughs) Right. It upset somebody somewhere along the line, didn't it? Yeah, so it does, mm. it did upset a friend doctor who is part of FLCCC. Since then, um, he has said that hey, let's just move past it. Ah. But the basic discussion was that there is a couple of studies. There was one study that was done in albino rats. That is, yes. I think maybe you had sent or I got it from somewhere, and that study had shown that continuous use of ivermectin may reduce the 
sperm count or the sperm's motility by causing inflammation in the testis. Uh-huh. And then there were some other studies. For example, there is one case, one case only. And again, 3.75 billion doses given. We're talking about one mm. case where mm. SARS-CoV-2, I'm talking not the drug now, the SARS-CoV-2 mm. may have caused testicular damage. So that means now for a male, if SARS-CoV-2 is there, they are going to end up with a testicular damage in theory. Or if they're taking ivermectin, now that is also going to cause some inflammation as was observed in the rats. So to balance these both things out, we don't want the SARS-CoV-2 to come into our body. We don't want it to go and cause any fertility issues. This was the point of view of the other doctor, which I agree with him. I had then additionally said, separately, uh, minding my own business, in my tweet I had said that, hey, it is seen that ivermectin's usage may cause inflammation in the testis, which may reduce the sperm's quality. And to avoid that, please take selenium and vitamin E. No problem. It's a fine advice. Mm. And that doctor said that you have uh, kind of scared other people. Uh, And now even if we're going to protect them, they would resist. I would once again back up and say this. Even when it is a theoretical thing or observed only in vivo in animals, there is a chance for that to happen. The solution is very simple. Take some anti-inflammatory. If you don't want to take vitamin E and selenium, take vitamin C. If you don't want to take that, take NAC or glutathione. Take some antioxidant with ivermectin and you're fine. Mm. Yeah, I suppose from their point of view, the FLCCC, um, of course, Dr. Marek is part of that. It's understandable that they would feel a little touchy about this because there is so much opposition, isn't there, to them from various quarters. So I I guess that's why it happened. I had no intention of of causing any of this to happen at all. Not at all. I think this is healthy disputational dialogue that Mm. eventually benefits the customer, the customer meaning the, the patient. Sure. Well, I did want to ask you, just before we close, for your reaction to the recent publication of a randomized controlled trial. We've been talking about all these mechanisms, but Dr. Marek said there is mounting evidence of ivermectin's effectiveness with regard to COVID-19, many, many studies. And yet when a study comes out that kind of disparages ivermectin, that's the one we tend to hear about in the press for various reasons. You know, it's like hydroxychloroquine all over again. It's the negative ones that that make the headlines. Uh, One wonders why. Uh, Well, does one wonder why? Uh, But um, this is why I wanted to ask you about this uh, recent one out of Columbia. So this is published in the JAMA called uh, Effective Ivermectin on Time to Resolution of Symptoms Among Adults with Mild COVID-19, a randomized clinical trial. And it has led to headlines. And I've got a headline here. This is from CNN. So this is 5th of March. Ivermectin drug is not effective at treating mild COVID-19 study finds. (laughs) Uh, Right. Okay. So one study comes out and that's it. Forget about it. Um, Yes. And I have read a number of concerns from people. um, And I follow the blog, for example, of Dr. Meryl Nass, and she's got lots of comments about it and uh, other comments. Um, Do do you have, I don't think you've managed to so far look into this in any detail, but do you have any immediate reaction to it? Absolutely. So a couple of things. One, there have been so many studies that are showing the efficacy to be great. So if there is one study that is not showing it, one, I still have to look at the design of the study and the methods and procedures Mm. and the analysis that they've done. So 
without knowing the study, I don't want to bad mouth it to say it is wrong or appreciate it to say it is good. Mm. So my first message, I still need to go over the study. My own cool beans have been asking me to go over this, but I was working on long hauler lectures, so I could not go to this one. So that's one. Sure. Second is for the journalists. My wife very commonly says whenever I make this complaint, she says, well, this is called yellow journalism. For a journalist, we would expect them to look at this study. And then if they're going to talk about it, then go look at other studies as well. And to come back and say, look, guys, I'm seeing this one study that came out and it said it's not very useful. And here are another 10 that are saying it is very useful. So I'm going to put that all out in front of you. And you can form your opinion and you can be informed or go talk with your doctor further. What I'm seeing is instead of journalism, this is mostly punditry where the news media nowadays are trying to figure out what is going to get them more clicks, hmm. what is going to get them more attention. And unfortunately, attention is given better when the things are sensationalizing, when things are scary, fearful, fear mongering. Hmm. So this is what they have done. Um, Sure. Can I push you a little on this? Do you think that there may be more to this? Do you think there may be actually a remit that some of these journalists are following, that they are supposed to find this drug not successful and reporting in that way? So I actually think this is a very real possibility. So again, the one who wrote Mm. these pieces, I do not know their motivations. Sure. So I cannot talk about them. But in general, I have been seeing this from the very beginning. Anytime there is a solution that can be readily available, that is inexpensive to use, and that can actually help, and people are crying out and saying it is helping, there is always some way of either keeping it under wrap or dismissing it or bad-mouthing it or just kind of discrediting it. Mm. And then those things that discredit it are made more public instead of those that can actually show the benefit. So some people say, well, this is big pharma. Big pharma doesn't want these small things to pop up, which are inexpensive and people are taking care of themselves with this. Maybe it is big pharma. Maybe it is the leadership. I think that it is people taking care of their interests. For example, somebody in big pharma has a friend in, let's say, FDA. And now they offline, they talk about it and they say, look what a mess this cybermectin is creating and look what is happening. And then similar discussions are happening in journalistic or punditry circles as well. And then people are just looking after each other's interests. I think that is what is happening. I think it is very bad to do this in general, but it is especially bad at this time because it is causing uh, it is causing people to die when they... create such messages yes thank you for answering that i realize of course there's an element of speculation but um, obviously we are seeing a pattern here so there there is something going along these lines even though we don't we can't be specific about it with with names and companies and all that sort of thing of course but there is a definite pattern Um, and along that can i ask you if you have any concerns at all or whether you you just celebrate the fact that it's happening um about the uh, the bill and melinda gates foundation part funding a randomized control trial out of McMaster University, collaboration with other centers in other countries, of course. And they're going to study three drugs, I believe. I've heard of two of them. (laughs) Metformin, not heard of. Um, Fluvoxamine, I believe I've heard of. And of course, Ivermectin uh, on treating COVID-19. 
Now, what I wondered was, does it concern you that they intend to give just one dose of ivermectin in this study, whereas I believe that Dr. Marek gives at least two doses, and I think you give probably more than that, don't you, to your patients. Does it bother you that they're setting this up with just one dose? It does. And so the number one, I'm not a person who says what Bill and Melinda Gates are doing are wrong or they are causing depopulation and that. Mm -hmm. In general, I think it is their team who is informing them to say, hey, we want to do this and here is our protocol and please give us your blessing and your money and we'll go do this. So I don't think that they themselves are just sitting somewhere and cooking up the ideas to say what dose should be given. But those who are doing the studies, it's the same issue like hydroxychloroquine, for example, when in Brazil they stopped the study, they had given chloroquine instead of hydroxychloroquine. And the dose of chloroquine was so much And we already know that the chloroquine is five times more potent than hydroxy. Mm. So when you're already giving a big dose and then it is five times potent as well. And now, of course, people had side effects and then they stopped it and said, you know what, this causes harm. Similarly here, it seems that the dose is too low once a month or once only once is not sufficient. What I've seen with my patients is uh, in prophylaxis weekly during active disease daily up till the point of uh, recovery. This, I differ from flccc.net, Dr. Marek, he says five days. I continue to give it till the patient comes out of the dangerous state. Mm. And then a long hauler once a week. If you look at flccc.net's protocol, they say, give it today, give it on the third day, and then bi-weekly from then on for prophylaxis. I do it weekly. The point is, the dose, one dose, which is deworming dose, is not yet observed to be good enough for ivermectin. So ideally what they should have done is, if I was there informing them and educating them, I would have said, you know what, take this iMask Plus protocol and support this protocol to be run in some places and see what happens. And I have no association other than having Dr. Marek with me, sometimes in interviews, and I love him and I respect him, Uh, I don't have any financial or other associations to be promoting them. I'm just saying that when we're going to spend some money and time on assessing something, Mm. then we should do the right thing instead of these silly one-dose trials. Indeed. I mean, looking at it from the outside, I I can't help but think, oh, no, here we go again. It smacks of something that's set up to fail. And, you know, that's deeply concerning because, of course, a lot of people, of course, the media will be looking at this when the results come in to say, well, this is giving us the gold standard. This is the answer. And although it may work, it looks like it may actually be just a flop. And that would be yet another tragedy to unfold in the future. Um, Anyway, I I did want to get your reaction to that. Still, on a more positive note, I note that there are countries, um, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Macedonia, I believe, that have adopted ivermectin for COVID-19. This is according to Trialsite News. I picked this up. And uh, I think there's a debate growing in Portugal and Peru has been using it, India, other places. So do you think that actually ivermectin is going to win through just through people finding out about it and more countries adopting it? Or do you, here's your crystal ball, (laughs) Dr. Bean, get get your crystal ball out. do you think the forces against it are going to, you know, the financial, the political forces, are they going to suppress it indefinitely? Or do you actually think it will win through in the end? So I actually think it is going to win through. And here is why. Hmm. Uh, I believe that humans have a resilience 
and a way to escape continuous misery. Hmm. So as much as, for example, I am upset with America's medical leadership, first they were against it, then NIH has now become neutral about it, but CDC came out and used the horse-based usage as as an excuse to put a piece in CNN to say this is causing harm, don't use it. They didn't explain that why aren't they approving it so people can take human ivermectin and the right doses and they don't have to go and hide somewhere in the in a, in a room and try to self-medicate themselves. This is actually on them instead of on people. Mm. Um, so the thing is people uh, would care for their own lives. They would not let these medical leaderships to just crush them like this. So in our body, there is a concept as well that if you block blood supply to some tissue, not to the point that it dies, but to the point that it gets hurt, and then when you restore the blood supply, there is a thing called law of compensation, and that tissue is going to pull as much blood as needed to compensate for the previous blood deprivation, and it escapes from that damage then and repairs. Similarly, human beings, we are not going to just be sitting idly to say, you know what, they stopped ivermectin, so there is no solution. Hmm. You are seeing that people are escaping here within the U.S. You are seeing that uh, U.K. people are now finding things to get ivermectin from other countries. It is unfortunate that there is no medical oversight then, hmm. which Indeed. was the job of these leadership. And those countries where these rules are a little more lax, I am seeing them using ivermectin and doing tremendously great. Hmm. Look at India and look at Pakistan and look at you know, so many other countries, Peru. So I think we will be getting out of it. During this time, there are going to be damage. Mm-hmm. There is damage that is occurring, and that is a sad and tragic part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for that positive note there. It's always good to have that sense of hope as to what might happen in the future. I'm, thank you ever so much, Dr. Bean. Yet again, fascinating stuff, fascinating discussion. And I'm going to recommend people, like I did last time, to go and visit your YouTube channel, because there you're going to see the drawings and those illustrations, which really bring to life all the things that you've been talking about today. Uh, very detailed, very approachable for the layperson, as I say, very, very helpful. And I hope that people will subscribe to your channel, which I, you've now got, I think, is it 260, almost 260,000 subscribers. That's incredible. Absolutely. Um, last time it was under 100,000, I think, the last time we spoke. So it was lesser. And now we are about, what, 260 overall across yeah. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and various groups. We are about a million now. Mm. And I am grateful for the opportunity that there are folks who have listened and are listening and I am blessed that I'm able to serve at this time. Yes, and one of the things wonderful about you is that you've said so many times in your program, you did not do this in order to become a star. Correct. <laughs> you did this in order to serve the global community with the skills that you have and the information that you have. And, and also, of course, to engage in a dialogue with your listeners, which I think is fantastic in that sense that we can learn from each other. Although you are the expert, nevertheless, you are, you know, you're encouraging people like me to engage with you, which I think is, is absolutely fantastic. And of course, uh, Luffy as well has become a star, as we said. And I, I did want to ask a question. Is, is Luffy hanging around? Because Luffy's uh, the one that you bring up in front of the camera sometimes, and he has a good old meow and everybody loves him. Is there any chance of asking him that question? I am sure he's somewhere over here. He's always hanging around. He's my oversight, medical oversight. He's our CDC over here. So I'm sure he's somewhere over here. So do you have any question for for Luffy? I do. Luffy, yes, I do have a question. Luffy, you are becoming a bit of a star these days. (laughs) 
<laughs> How does that feel? And is Kylie jealous? Kylie's the other cat. Is that not right? Yeah, so I'm going to let Luffy answer that. I'm sure that he would have a beautiful meow about this one. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that right? Is it Kylie, your other cat? Yeah, so Kairi, K-A-I-R-I. Ah, Kairi. Kairi uh-huh. is the other cat. Okay. Kairi is the quiet one. She doesn't speak much at all. Mm. And Luffy would not stop. <laughs> Luffy has been so vocal that there have been cool beans who have become very concerned sometimes. And so in the beginning, they thought, I don't feed Luffy. Oh. So they said, well, please feed him. And he's thirsty or hungry. But his food and his water is always present out in the open. You know, those feeding systems where when you eat, it just keeps dropping more in it, in the plate. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So he has those kind of two, three pots everywhere. So he's not hungry. We have water filled for him everywhere. So he's not thirsty either. And then a few days ago, some cool bean had said that looks like Luffy wants love. He's alone. You don't give him... (laughs) enough attention Ah. or maybe he's a lone cat as well and there needs to be another cat or you need to pet him more often or pet him before the talk so (laughs) i will tell you this that uh, luffy one he sleeps on my bed oh i see so i the whole night i have to adjust myself so that luffy is not bothered (laughs) and uh, we hold hands in a way that you know he, he sits near my hand and sleeps so Uh, He's always there. Then my wife plays with him very often. When he is here, even during the lecture, he would meow. He would come in. I would pick him up, would pet it, and then he'll start meowing again. He is just that way. So he's not deprived (laughs) of love or food. No. I have to say he strikes me as being rather spoiled from that (laughs) description. He's a troublemaker, yes. <laughs> a beautiful cat. So I'm glad you bring them up sometimes. What, what is it? Is it a Bengal? Did you say? Correct. It, they both are Bengals. Yeah. Yes. Bengals. Lovely. Yeah. Beautiful animals. Um, okay. Well, let me just say uh, for listeners that if you feel any of your questions about ivermectin not being answered today, uh, don't forget we may well have covered that in an interview with Dr. Marek uh, a few times ago. So please do go back through the archives at TMR and listen to that conversation because uh, our remit today was the mechanisms of ivermectin. I will repeat just before we close: nothing said today here is medical. Advice. Everybody's different. Everybody has different needs, tolerances, etc. So please do consult with your doctor before making any changes to your diet, aware of supplementations, or taking any treatments. Very, very important to keep that in mind. Thank you again, Dr. Bean, for another excellent interview. It's wonderful to speak to you again. And thank you for spending so much of your valuable time with us on this podcast. You are very welcome. Your audience is very welcome. And thank you very much for having me and listening to these mechanisms. Absolute delight. Thank you very much. And thank you as well, Luffy. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye to you. Bye-bye. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rijakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, Dr. Mubin Syed, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. (laughs) 